I invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24. Our stance at Grace Orange is that we trust the Holy Spirit to use the Word of God in our lives to transform us, no matter what is going on. Today is part three of our series within a series entitled Living in the Last Days. It's Matthew chapter 24 and 25. What we're looking at is Jesus' words to his disciples concerning the end times, concerning the events associated with his return. And what we've seen so far is that Jesus predicts the fall of Jerusalem and he warns his disciples about disruptive world events and hardships and tribulation that they would encounter. But today what we're going to see is Jesus talking about his actual return. So take your Bibles Turn to Matthew 24 and please stand with me. We'll read verses 29 through 35. Today we're going to catch a glimpse, really. We we get to catch a glimpse of what the future holds, how that ought to affect our daily lives. Matthew 24, beginning at verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender, you know that summer is near. So also when you see all these things, you know that he's near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, This generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your presence, and we thank you, Lord, that your word does not pass away, that your word is settled and fixed forever in heaven. We thank you, Lord, that you are are powerful and mighty and thank you for these truths lord and we pray that you would you would impress them upon our hearts and that you would encourage us and and correct us where needed and open our eyes lord that we would see wonderful things in your word today we pray in jesus name amen the coming of the son of man Christians have been waiting for this day for centuries. The return of Jesus Christ will be like nothing we have ever looked forward to. We don't really even have words. We have God's word on it about what it will be like. But we are people who, who spend a, a, our lives waiting. We We wait in waiting rooms, we wait in lobbies, we wait for people to arrive. Sometimes we wait for a long time. You might have a relative or a friend who's gone away on a trip and they're overseas and we might even go to the the airport and and even put out a banner for their return. Might have a, a welcome home party. But when Christ 
returns, what we await, it will be like nothing we have ever waited for before. Jesus is referring to His coming and it will be a glorious appearing. Jesus will appear in all His magnificence. Christians have been waiting expectantly. We should hope expectantly for that day. It's guaranteed to happen because Jesus says it would. Jesus is saying this is going to happen. But only a fool would think that navigating the details is easy. Navigating the details, especially of this passage of Scripture, is is almost like a labyrinth. It's like a maze, a tricky maze, almost like one of those old Rubik's Cubes, where it's hard puzzle to figure out. As some people say, it is somewhat challenging. I'm not saying, by the way, that it's the biblical equivalent of the ISIS adventure or the hardest logic puzzle ever. What I am saying is that there is little agreement about these verses amongst people who usually agree. You could get a whole room full of people who agree on the basics of the faith and they will not agree on this passage. There are several things I have been mentioning the last few weeks about which all Christians ought to agree when it comes to the end times. Number one, the fact that Jesus will return. Every Christian needs to believe that. And, number two, the abomination of desolation and the tribulation will happen. And number three, unbelievers will be judged and believers will be blessed. Number four, Satan will be judged. And number five, we will dwell on a new heaven and new earth. These are the things that Christians ought to agree on. And with, the, in, with those things, we are in full agreement, but there is very little agreement on the passage I'm preaching today as it pertains to views and details and timing and order of events. It is safe to say that this passage is amongst the most heavily debated verses in all the Bible. Every phrase, every phrase has multiple views. Except for the simple glorious truth that Jesus Christ will return, every other bit of this passage is debated. So, the things that this passage speaks about are solidly in the territory of things only God knows. Now, this is not reason to run from this passage. This is not reason to ignore what God's Word is saying here. This is all the more reason to embrace the challenge and, and really try to, to figure out the realities that this passage is pointing to. That's not hard to do. But timing, it is said, is everything. And Jesus is dealing with timing here. His disciples come to Him with the question, When? When will these things happen? And then they say, what? They want details. They want details, too. What will be the sign of your coming? What will be the sign of the end of the age? And it has led to different views about the timing and details about these things. In fact, let me share with you two primary views. The first is what is called the preterist view. It's from the Latin word praetor, which means past or beyond. The idea here is that those who hold to a preterist view believe that all these prophecies were fulfilled by A.D. 70. 
The other view that is primary is called the futurist view, that most of these events have not happened yet, that they are still future. We are still awaiting them. Now, most people I run into are what I would call tweeners between these two views. They hold something between a preterist and a futurist view, that they are having some combination of opinions between the preterist and futurist views. Jesus spoke these words on the Mount of Olives. That's why it's called the Olivet Discourse. He is responding to his disciples' three-part question, when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming? What will be the sign of the end of the age? And he answers by speaking of times and signs and details. And he speaks authoritatively about these things. But what we can, what we can come, the conclusion we can come to is that we don't understand it all. One of the things that kept running through my mind this week as I was preparing and praying through this message is aim small, miss small. Because there's a lot you can miss on in this one. Jesus is speaking prophetically, which means that we need to have absolute allegiance and acceptance of his word even when we do not understand every bit of it. Now, where have we been so far in this passage? We have looked at the first 14 verses and the signs, the first week, the signs of his coming that really, if you think about it, aren't signs at all. They're just the beginning of birth pains. The beginning of birth pains isn't the actual birth. It's just leading up to the birth. So Jesus gave the signs of the times the, before his coming that would be like birth pains. Again, not the event, but the precursors to the event. Next, we look at verses 15 through 28. And we saw the abomination of desolation, the event that would trigger those birth pains when the Antichrist himself sets himself up as God in the temple. And that would lead to great tribulation. But now, in verses 29 through 35, Jesus actually talks about his very return. That's what we're looking at today. Now, there's a, there's a phrase in this passage that we see twice. A title for Jesus that we need to focus on. And it is this, the Son of Man. The Son of Man is a title, a descriptive title, that Jesus alone uses for himself. In the Gospels, it's found some 78 times. Jesus referring to himself as the Son of Man. You know, people maybe make up all sorts of silly nicknames for themselves at times. I remember Shaq called himself the Big Diesel and Superman and other things. This is not a silly nickname for Jesus. This is not an arbitrary name that he came up with. This is full of meaning. There is a reason why we need to understand what, it, what does it mean to, for him to be called the Son of Man. A lot of Christians misunderstand it. A lot of Christians maybe see only one aspect of it. So I want to highlight this term before we get into verse 29. I want to highlight it because Jesus highlights it. Jesus as the Son of Man, what is it about? What does it mean? Well, it's a reference to both his humanity and his Messiahship. He is using this to highlight his, his humanity as God incarnate. And it's a messianic title that he's applying to himself, which we find in, in Daniel chapter 7. If you want to go there, it's Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Here's what it says. I saw in the night visions, 
And behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. What you have here in Daniel's prophecy as he speaks of the Son of Man refers to a glorified sovereign, a glorified king. It's this apocalyptic messianic figure who rules forever with the Ancient of Days. It's speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus' favorite title when referring to himself is the Son of Man. And he uses this expression to clarify exactly who he is and what his ministry will be about. It was a title that he used in Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. He asked his disciples, what do men say about me? Who do they say I am the Son of Man? Who do they say the Son of Man is? It's pointing to his perfect humanity. God incarnate, identifying with the people he came to save. His earthly ministry. Mark chapter 2, verse 10. He says, The Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. That's important. That's critical. Mark chapter 2, verse 28. He says, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. That's important. That's critical. He says in verse uh, 20 of Matthew 8, The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Here's God in the flesh, the creator of the world, come down to earth in the form of a man, and he had nowhere to lay his head. That's, that's crucial. Luke chapter 19, verse 10, he says, this, and probably most crucial, the Son of Man came to seek and to save those who were lost. That's a very, very significant idea. And it's the Son of Man doing it. He speaks of his sufferings on behalf of humanity. Mark chapter 8, verse 31, he, he spells out very clearly that the Son of Man is going to suffer and be killed and rise on the third day. He speaks of his exaltation and his rule. Look at Matthew chapter 25, verse 31. Jesus says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations. And then you look at chapter 26 and verse 24. Jesus says about himself, The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. He's going to be dying for the sins of the world. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would be better for that man if he had not been born. Most importantly, Jesus is using this title for himself as a messianic designation. It's a title, again, used exclusively by Jesus about Jesus to emphasize his humanity as God incarnate and his Messiahship, most importantly, that he is the one promised to come and suffer and be exalted forever. That is a very significant idea that we must keep in mind as he is now speaking of his return. He says, the coming of the Son of Man. Summarize this idea of the Son of Man would be to say that Jesus as the Son of Man is the humble servant who came to forgive sins, 
That he is the suffering servant whose atoning death and resurrection will redeem his people. And the Son of Man is the glorious King and judge who will return to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth. That's the idea behind Son of Man. It's very significant. It's very crucial. One not to be misunderstood. Now what we have here, and we start in verse 29, is Jesus telling us what His return will be like. What the Son of Man's return will be characterized by. I see in this passage six characteristics of Christ's return. The first we see in verse 29. Verse 29 says, Jesus says, immediately after the tribulation of those days. Now this is the first thing that has issues. Immediately after what tribulation and what days? I think it's most plausible to say that it's the tribulation that he is explaining all the way from verse 4 through verse 28. Everything he says is that is going to happen. And what he says is after that, basically the lights are going to go out unmistakably. This will be a very unsettling thing. The first characteristic is that it will be, it will be frightening, it will be unsettling, it will be, it'll be cataclysmic, it will be terrifying. Jesus says the sun will be darkened. We think of the sun as being light. The moon will not give its light. It won't shine anymore. And the stars, probably most scary, will fall from the sky. Now a lot of people say, well, these are figurative things that, will, that are just being described. Others say, well, it's a combination of literal and figurative. I happen to believe these are going to be literal things that actually happen. That the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven because we have God's word on it elsewhere. Isaiah chapter 13, verse 9 and 10. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel, with fury and burning anger, to make the land a desolation, and he will exterminate its sinners from it, For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises, and the moon will not shed its light. We have Isaiah 34, 4 on it. All the host of heaven shall rot away, and the skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall as leaves fall from the vine, and make the stars like leaves falling from the fig tree. In Ezekiel chapter 32, verse 7, he says, When I blot you out, I will cover the heavens and make their stars dark. I will cover the sun with a cloud, and the moon will not give its light. These are things that are going to happen when Jesus returns. Joel chapter 2, verse 31 says, The sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. See, basically, there will be unsettling, cataclysmic world events with things that don't usually move like that and it will put everyone on red alert something is going on it will be terrifying and they will be asking what's happening Joel chapter 3 verse 15 says the sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining Amos 8 9 says on that day declares the Lord I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight I didn't hear these passages preached when I was an unbeliever. But if I had, I would have been running down the aisle. 
motivated by the, the fear of, the, of judgment from Almighty God. Go all the way to Revelation chapter 6, verse 12, and it says that he opened the sixth seal. And I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood. Reminds me kind of uh, in some way of, of, of hearing of the old air raid warnings where you'd have to like duck and cover because maybe there were incoming planes. Or like a burglar alarm where, hey, there's someone in the house or someone in the office. Here, things will happen that have never happened before and everyone will be wondering what is happening. It will be unsettling. There's really no, no way else to put it. Let me go to verse 30. It tells us that then will appear in heaven. Then, when those things are happening, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. So, the sun will be darkened, the moon won't give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and then in heaven, the coming of the Son of Man will be, secondly, unmistakable unmistakable then will appear in heaven the sign of the son of man it will be seen it will be conspicuous people will know that it is Jesus before this time there will be false Christ and false prophets who will claim to be him but won't be him and they will deceive people but here it will unmistakably be Jesus he will appear in all his magnificence What is the sign? There's one that, have, that is, has uh, puzzled many. In the first century, the predominant idea was that there would be a huge figurative sword cutting through the clouds, parting the clouds. Kind of a fanciful view. A lot of commentators believe that Jesus himself is the sign. So you would read it like, the sign that is the Son of Man Another view that has some, some, uh, some traction is that it's the trumpet in this passage. It's the trumpet and the parting of the clouds, this grand entrance that's announced by these things. But here's what I can tell you with assurance. All of these ideas are guesses. That's all they are, guesses. We do not know. And I think it's pretty freeing to be able to say we don't know. We always want to know. We always want to have assurance. We always want to be right. Well, on this one, we won't be until it happens. Here's what I know. It will be something that only those who actually see it with their own eyes will know. And they will know that it's Jesus. That's the most important part. That it will unmistakably be Jesus. And here's what we know for sure. After everything that verse 29 says will happen, happens, Jesus will appear. That's what we know. It will be at the end of human history, and it will happen, and God will then gather his elect. Mark chapter 14, verse 62, Jesus says, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Acts chapter 11. 1 verse 11 when Jesus ascended to the Father the angel says men of Galilee why are you staring up into the sky basically this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way you saw him go into heaven 
And then Revelation 1-7, the first part of that verse, Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him. Even those who pierced Him will see Him. At the end, it will be perfectly clear that He is the divine Messiah and that He has shown up on the scene. That's what we know. So it will be unsettling, it will be unmistakable, and third, it will be understood. People will understand what is going on. Verse 30, all the tribes of the earth will mourn. All the tribes of the earth will mourn. Some think this means that they will mourn unto repentance, that they will feel sorry for their sins and turn to the Lord and be saved. The only problem with that view is it'll be too late for them at that point. I believe this is a mourning over their sinful rejection of Him. Matthew 16, 27 says, For the Son of Man, Jesus says, For the Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father, and then He will repay each person according to what He has done. Revelation 1, 7, the last part of that verse says, And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him. I think at that point people will finally get it. Just like in the days of Noah when the flood waters came upon the earth. Think about before that time. God had told Noah, build this big boat. And after you build it, put all the animals in it and then put some people in it and then I'm going to bring a flood upon the earth and I'm going to destroy everything that's not in that boat. People didn't believe it. People thought he was crazy. They ridiculed him. Day after day. Until the day when all the animals got into the boat and a small group of people got in and God shut the door. And then, as the song goes, the rains came down and the floods came up. Right, kids? The rains, Sunday school teachers? The rains came down and the floods came up and people were beating on the door trying to get in and it was too late. They were wailing. They understood. Coming of the Son of Man will be understood. All the tribes of the earth will mourn over their sinful rejection of Him. Yes, and and His people will be gathered to Him. Verse 31, He will send out His angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather His elect from the four winds, literally from north, south, east, and west, from the four points of the compass. And they will gather from one end of heaven to the other. All the places that the gospel went to the ends of the earth and all those chosen before the foundation of the world will be gathered together. Coming of the Son of Man will be unsettling. People will wonder what is happening it will be cataclysmic and it's going to be unmistakable they will know it's Jesus and it's going to be understood they're going to know what, what, what they should have done but then in verse 30 it also says that they will see the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory so the coming of the son of man will also be unquestioned There will be no debate on that day. 
There are people right now saying that Jesus isn't coming back. And they don't believe that he came in the first place and died in our place. They don't believe that he was ever born. They think it's all a fable. They'll say it's not true. But on that day, there will be the unquestioned authority of the Son of God reigning. Takes us back to Daniel chapter 7. When on the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man coming to the ancients of, uh, ancient of days and was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that all people's nations and languages would serve him and the dominion he was given is everlasting and the kingdom he has will never be destroyed as the psalmist says in Psalm 110 the Lord said to my Lord sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool and the Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter rule in the midst of your enemies and in the verses we always read at Christmas, I preached for four weeks on these verses, Isaiah 9, 6 and 7, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness, from this time forth and forever this will be an authority settled God says the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this go to Revelation eleven fifteen. 15 it says that the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever his authority will be unquestioned. Just this last week, in Dallas, Texas, five presidents were gathered. Five U.S. presidents, five living U.S. presidents, four former presidents, and then our current president. And by the way, that's an exclusive club. Not many people get into that club. They call it a support group. But everyone knows who had authority, who has authority in that group. The four former presidents, you can call them President George W. Bush. By the way, they were there to, to celebrate the dedication of the George W. Bush Presidential Library. Every president there knew who really has authority to make decisions for our country. That day, though, when Jesus appears, the coming of the Son of Man, it will be obvious who is in charge. There will be no questions. There will be no debates. His authority will be unquestioned. We're going to, we're going to stop here with these verses, actually. We're going, to, we're going to take verses 31 to 34 next week. And we're going to look at those in greater detail. I want to fast forward to a few implications and really a question. And the question is this. Why should we be interested in the end times? Why is, is it so important, is it so crucial for us to understand these things and live in light of them? A lot of people would say, you know, 
I'm just really not that interested. I would submit to you that if you're a Christian and you say you're not interested in the end times, your growth as a Christian is being stunted. That you are not growing as God intends his people to grow. And if you, if you want proof, just do a study on all the mentions in the New Testament of the second coming of Christ and what it says about how we should live in light of it. You'll be blown away by how, how practically interwoven in daily life comments of the second coming are. Why should we be so interested in this? Why should you really want... Why am I so excited about this? Why should you be excited about it? You could ask the, the selfish question, what's in it for me? What's in it for me? I'm living with the pain and misery of sin's effects. Or aren't we all? Every one of us. Some of us, oh, life is good right now. Some of us, life's not so great right now. But every one of us is living with the the pain and the misery of sin's effects. Are we not? That's our reality. And we have these truths about Christ's return that are so important to our life right now. They're very important to living today. Let me give you a few reasons why. Number one, it's for the sake of unity in Christ's church. That's one of the reasons why you should be so interested in this. This is for the sake of unity in Christ's church. You know, don't cause divisions amongst believers about anything. Don't don't gossip about other believers. Don't slander other believers. Don't hate your brother or sister in Christ. And surely don't cause divisions in the body of Christ amongst, amongst believers about the end times. Don't break fellowship with born-again believers who hold a different view than you. Foster unity instead. Paul, when talking about the coming day of the Lord, coming return of Christ, he, he says comfort one another with these words we should be encouraging one another with the fact that christ is coming back now our church here grace orange we have a an official teaching position when it comes to the end times you can look it up on the website it's there's not a lot of detail but the idea is our our official teaching position as a grace brethren church is is the futurist position it's, it's the dispensational view. It's the, it includes a premillennial, pre-tribulational rapture of the church. And by the way, we're going to outline that view and other plausible views in greater detail on May 19th. We're going to have a special Grace Bible Institute session for all ages. But I will tell you this. This is not the view to break fellowship over. There are people in the same leadership team, the same local church who hold different views. When I look at uh, the preterist view and I look at the reformed and amillennial views, there is a lot about those views that are very plausible. Every view has its strengths and weaknesses. There is no view that is 100% certain because Jesus didn't, didn't outline the view as clearly as maybe some of us can. There are some great explanations out there and there are some, some uh, great answers for those explanations. 
And it is all right for us to say, we don't know for sure. We don't know. But God does. I don't want you to be overwhelmed by prophecy. I don't want you to be overwhelmed by different views that people hold and be all afraid and worried that you might not have the right view. For the sake of unity in the body of Christ, don't cause divisions amongst believers for any reason, and especially for end times reasons. Foster unity. The second thing I'll say about why you should be so excited about this and so interested in this is for the sake of fruitful ministry. For the sake of doing and keeping on doing what God has called you to do in every place he's called you to. To, to engage in evangelism, sharing your faith in Christ, sharing the gospel of the grace of God in Christ, and discipleship, helping Christians grow in Christ wherever you are. Like a, a perennial flower that just comes up in your yard every year and it blooms this time of year and you're like, wow, I forgot it was there. But God wants us to be blooming in season and out of season. Season. Bloom where you're planted. I love what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.7. You do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. Goes right along with my idea, my premise, that this church and every church that, that preaches the gospel and loves Jesus and, and, and sticks to the word of God has everything God wants it to have to do everything he's called them to do today. What we need for tomorrow, he will provide that as well. You do not like any spiritual gift as you wait eagerly for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. Do you notice that there's the spiritual gift that should be exercised to build up the body and you're waiting for Jesus to be revealed? You're not waiting twiddling your thumbs. You're waiting while serving the the Lord Jesus Christ. That should generate excitement. Lastly, and I think maybe most of all because of hope. Because of, of unity, because of ministry, but also because of hope. See, we live in light of future events every single day. Every one of us is, is, is living in light of the future event called lunch right now. And after that, probably dinner. And we make plans and we, we create menus and we spend time and money and we dream about what it's going to be like. We live in light of future reality. Some of you are expecting babies. Some of you are expecting retirement or a vacation trip that you've planned for a long time. Some of you have a test tomorrow morning. A future reality that you need to prepare for. A multitude of important and and also somewhat mundane things are are what we live in light of in terms of future realities every day of of our life. And we look forward, we anticipate, we dream, we wonder, we plan, we prepare. And God wants us to have our hope in Jesus Christ as an anchor for our souls, living in light of eternal realities, future realities. I like what 1 John 3 says, 1 John 3, 1 through 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. 
Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. Our hope in Christ is is what purifies us. You know, if you're a Christian today, nothing can separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. God doesn't want us to be looking over our shoulder in fear the whole time as we anticipate His, His arrival. Now, when I was coaching Little League back in the day, I had once had a, uh, a young kid on my team who, every time he went up to bat, he would stand there at home plate totally terrified. And the reason was because his father would stand behind home plate and yell at him the whole time. You didn't swing the right way. Watch out for this next pitch. And the guy was out of control. They put him on my team because they thought I could handle him. Only had one other time in sports like that. I had a, a basketball dad that screamed at his son the whole game and we had to have him go out of the gym. But God doesn't want us looking over our shoulder in fear thinking, oh, maybe I'm going to get God mad at me if I say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing. That's a misunderstanding of grace and justice. See, God wants us to be more like more like Sam in the Lord of the Rings, Return of the King, Tolkien's last book. The heroes arrive at the toughest part of the journey. They've, they've come to this far away evil land and everything seems bleak. They just want to give up. And Sam looks into the dark sky and Tolkien writes, far above the mountains in the west, The night sky was still dim and pale. There, peeping among the cloud rack above a dark tor high up in the mountains, Sam saw a white star twinkle for a while. The beauty of it smote his heart as he looked up out of the forsaken land and hope returned to him. For like a shaft clear and cold, the thought pierced him that in the end, the shadow was a small and passing thing. There was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. Tolkien also wrote, often hope is born when all is forlorn. We are now three weeks into a series on the last days. My hope, my prayer, is that we as a church are growing more intent on loving Jesus and longing for His return as we, as we live this life. As I said last week, with caution, with courage, but also with concern for the unity of the body, also with, with care for fruitful ministry, trusting the Holy Spirit as we use the Word of God, and then with a, with a profound hope the profound hope that, that does not disappoint because it's founded on the words of the Lord Jesus Christ.
Lord God, we thank you for your gospel truth. Lord, we thank you for your promises that are true. We thank you for what you are doing, what you have done, and Lord, what you will do. Lord, may you use us even today as we live in light of of the future to foster unity, to foster ministry that makes an eternal difference. All wrapped up in the hope we have in you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.